Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning. It's so good to see all of you and be back with you this morning. Let me say welcome to all of you joining us online as well. We are continuing in our series out of the book of Hebrews. Uh, we have been walking through Hebrews. We're in week eight of this journey through Hebrews. If you're new with us, either online or here, first of all, we are excited and honored that you are joining us this morning in our journey through Hebrews. We pray that we serve you well. We pray that you see Jesus through us. We pray that our church is known to be Jesus-centered, to be Bible-centered, and to be Jesus-glorifying in everything that we say and do, and we hope that that comes through today. As we've been walking through this series, uh, which we've entitled Jesus is Greater, we have one more week of Hebrews before we take a break. We're going to take a little weekend breather after next week, and we're going to celebrate what God has been doing uh, in and through our For the Kingdom campaign, which we kicked off back at the beginning of the year, and then we'll get right back into Hebrews. So we're going to take a little pause in a couple weeks and celebrate that, and then we'll come back just so you guys are aware of how God is walking us through this. I want to begin this morning, and again, if you have a Bible, join me in Hebrews chapter 4. If you have an electronic device, go ahead and open up Hebrews chapter 4 if you have one. I want to begin with a question this morning. How many of us are restless? Maybe not this morning in this very moment, especially after that set of uh, worship through song. Maybe we feel a little more at ease at what's happening in and through our lives or around our lives. But how many of us have experienced or maybe you are experiencing a season or a time of just restlessness where you feel like you're tossing and turning. And I'm not just talking about not sleeping well, although that could be included in it. How many of us feel like we're just kind of going through life, bouncing side to side, walking on some uneven ground where you just wish you could get your footing and everything kind of just settle where you're searching for a moment where you can just get your breath. How many of us are tired? Yes. It's okay. You can raise your hand. You can confess that it's okay. That's what this text is going to speak to us. It's going to talk to us about rest. I want to try and set the stage for us this morning as we look at this text and remind us of a few things. So the writer, the author of Hebrews was addressing this letter to Jewish Christians and their experience of faith was not going as great uh, as they had expected. And they were experiencing persecution. They were experiencing hardships. They were experiencing being pressed in. They were experiencing restlessness, if you will. And some had returned even to the ways of their former religion, Judaism, for which as the theme of texts uh, rest in this particular section, there was none. And what another scholar, commentators, and some want to point out as well is that they believe that scattered throughout the book of Hebrews were warnings to unbelievers, but not just any kind of unbelievers. Unbelievers who know the truth in this case were Jews who had turned from Judaism and begun to point towards Jesus. 
but had never really received Christ. They had gone away from their religion of Judaism, but they hadn't stepped into a real relationship with Jesus Christ. They looked very much like a disciple or a follower, but they had no heart transformation, which was important to understand as the writer gives us this book of Hebrews. And, and so, so they, these that are there, these unbelievers, they're looking at Christ, but they're in danger. They're in danger because of, again, persecution or social pressure and maybe even the love of their own sin, which is the flesh, right, at work within us. And the danger is turning around and going back to, again, their old religion, Judaism. And so at points throughout the book of Hebrews, we find that this group is warned not to go back there no matter what pressure, but to take the full step of faith into a relationship with Jesus. And why is this important to understand in the backdrop of the book? Because there are people who are in this very identical situation, who have started to turn from the former life, and they've turned to Jesus, but they've never made the step of real commitments, the belief and trust fully in Christ. And so they're always in danger of having hardened hearts, turning back and going back to the former kind of life and never experiencing rest, capital R, rest. This is the great promise, the greater promise of rest that's given to us as we look through this text. And so our author, in this section, he's going to instruct us regarding rest, which I think, again, all of us agree is a very important subject in our lives, throughout our lives. So let's look at our text, verses 1 through 13 this morning, in chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they, had, they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's a lot here. There's a lot here, but my hope and prayer today is as God leads us through, that it will be exactly what he wants us to hear collectively together. So the author is wrapping up 
his sermon on Psalm 95. It began in chapter 3. He began a sermon in chapter 3 on Psalm 95. And the last verse of Psalm 95, verse 11, reads like this. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, which we just saw within the text which we're looking at this morning. And from this, we get our, our takeaway, really, our, our main thought today. And that is strive to enter the rest that God offers through Jesus Christ. Persevere, endure, run the race, trust, strive to enter. So in order to understand that takeaway for us this morning, we need to answer two questions. Two questions. The first one is, what is rest? What is rest? The second one is, how do we enter this rest? Before we get to those questions, though, we have to understand what's happening in the text. Let's try to understand kind of the bigger picture of this text together. It's kind of this compare and contrast, right? So, so there are two groups compared here. The Old Testament uh, Jews, God's people, the Old Testament, the Jews who were delivered from slavery. Uh, to, they were in slavery to Egypt. They were delivered from that. And then the New Testament Jewish Christians who were delivered from slavery to sin. And the Jews in the wilderness were faced with a temptation to fall back to the familiarity of life in Egypt. And if you were to study the, the Exodus and that time as they came out of that slavery, you could see just how much they wanted to kind of go back to what they, were, that they had, even though it was slavery. And the Jewish Christians were faced with a temptation to fall back into familiarity of life in Jerusalem. To go back to the what you could say is a shadow of the now fulfilled old covenant system fulfilled in and by Jesus Christ. So the captivity of the Israelites in Egypt is comparable to the kind of the whole period of the Old Testament. One commentator, he points out, he says, here is where the parallels meet in detail. God brought Israel out of captivity in Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb, where they then spent a generation, 40 years, wandering in the wilderness. The church was brought out of her captivity to sin through the death and resurrection of the greater lamb, Jesus, and then endured their own similar wilderness generation from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D., their own wilderness testing, if you will, a time where the city of Jerusalem, especially Jerusalem's temple, still stood as temptation to the Hebrew Christians, one that, that many gave into and fell back to. Hence letters like Paul's uh, letter to the Galatians warning of the Judaizer heresy, a mixture of old covenant uh, ceremonial law with the gospel. So just as Egypt looked better for the newly freed Israelites in the Old Testament on the way to the promised land, so now Jerusalem, with its temple and familiarity, looked better for the newly freed Jew in this generation. And the warning is the same for both because the danger is the same for both. And the warning is unbelief. The warning is unbelief. To reject the substance of Christ's new covenant work is an act of unbelief. Refusal to believe what God has spoken through his son. They just don't believe. Unbelief. So again, the warning, don't fail to enter the rest of Jesus Christ. The gospel rest. That he fought and died and risen is now ruling to provide for us. Now, with that kind of overall picture, let's answer our first question, what is rest? Look back in our text, verses 1 and 2. So both the Israelites in the wilderness, just like the recipients of this letter, heard the good news. 
They heard the good news. So if you've ever wondered if the good news was the same in Old Testament, New Testament, we know right here they heard the good news based on how the writer presents it to us. That is the gospel, the good news. The gospel is good news, right? It's an invitation to this rest. The gospel is an invitation to this rest. And it's the same gospel. So, so when the Apostle Paul wanted to explain the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, where does he go? And if you were to look at the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament, you would see that he goes to Genesis 15. He would go to the very first book of the Bible, and he would go to chapter 15, and he would take us to Genesis 15, verse 6, where Abraham believed, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. The just shall live by faith. And so he goes right to the Old Testament. Paul would go right to the Old Testament to preach justification by grace to us. Why? Because it's the gospel that's been proclaimed since the beginning. If you were to go even farther back in the Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that's where God speaks these words that we hold on to, that he says to, to Adam and Eve and to the servant, he says to them, he says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel, which is the first it's the Proto-Evangelium, which is known as the first word of evangelism. It's the first gospel where God promises that everything that happened, I'm going to fix. I'm going to make right. But they failed to enter the rest that was promised due to unbelief. Look again at the end of verse 2. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They didn't benefit from the good news which was proclaimed to them because they didn't believe. And if you were to study again the story of the, the, in the Old Testament of the Jewish nation coming out of slavery on their way to the promised land, it was in their disobedience of not believing that they wandered. And a generation died in the wilderness. The disobedience was that they didn't believe. Let's keep going in our text, verses 3 to 5 again. Again, we're answering the question, what is rest? For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. So built into Israel's week was a reminder of God's work and rest. God created all things in six days and then he rested. Again, go back to the very beginning of the scriptures, the very beginning book of the Bible, Genesis. Read chapters 1 and 2. You will read the story of creation. God rested. He created and he rested. He rested from his work of creation on the seventh day. And so the people of God were instructed through Moses to rest from their work on the seventh day, the Sabbath. This Sabbath rest is a type of rest we are to enter in Christ. Because that rest offered to the people of Israel wasn't just about a day off each week. It was something greater. And I want to point out here in this little couple of verses, if you, if you didn't notice, this, is a, this isn't just any type of rest. This is the rest. This is the rest. And I mean that by, by look what's in front of the word rest in verses 3 uh, and 5. They shall not enter my rest. It's God's rest. This is God's rest. It just isn't any rest. 
This is divine rest offered to those who trust in Him. This is a greater rest than anything or any person that you and I would have in our lives here on earth could bring to us. This is divine rest from God. This is a greater rest. And this is a greater promise. Verses 6 through 11. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Still available, which was good news to them, to the audience of the Hebrew letter, to us today, it's still available. It wasn't just a one-time thing in the Old Testament. It's still available today, which is good news. There was more to this promise than what the day or even what the promised land for those in the wilderness would give, right? The Sabbath day rest was built, was built on the people embodying what God did in creation. Six days of work, then one of rest. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that Christ does something similar after his work of new creation. God rests after his work of creation. Christ rests after his work of new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul would say to us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Who did the work of the new creation? Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so there's a careful distinction here in the text. Verse 11 tells us that we should therefore strive to enter, there's a word there, that rest. Not any type of rest or just rest in general, but that rest. That particular rest that has just been described, namely to enter Jesus' rest. This isn't our rest, it's his rest. We can't produce this rest, only Jesus can. And, and I'm going somewhere with this, so keep going. Keep following along. We just enter into this. We don't create it. Why is this important to see? Because it shows us that we're not obligated to do the thing that one must usually do before they rest. What is that? Work. Work. We usually work, then we rest. We work, then we rest. No, this is Christ's rest. This is His rest because He's already done the work. And He has risen from the dead to reap the rest that His work has won. An everlasting Sabbath from the work of new creation because the work is finished, it's done. So what happens here? Jesus reorients the seventh day rest into something greater. First day rest. For the Jews under the old covenant, they worked, then they rested. But soon after the resurrection, if you study that in the New Testament, soon after the resurrection, the church began to meet for teaching and worship on what they called the Lord's Day, 
which is not the last day of the week, but rather the first. Why? Because Jesus began the work of new creation on the first day of the week, Sunday, the day that he rose from the dead. They worked and then rested. We begin our week with rest. Let this sink in. They worked for rest. We work from rest. We start with rest because the work is done. Now, that has magnificent implications in our life. It means your identity. It means the things that you do and the things that you say and the places that you go and the decisions that you make all are coming out of a place that is centered and found in its stability of Christ and in Christ. I don't have to go out and work now to have worth and value and prestige and accolade and all and to be known. Christ has already done that and in his finished work that's already been given to me by the creator he's the one who creates we are a new creation in him not of us and as I rest now as we worship here the rest of our week now is from this place that's why we talk about it's so important for us to gather to sit under the fountain of the Holy Spirit to be filled up again full of rest so that we may go through our week with boldness Witnessing and testifying. That's why it's so important that we enter this rest. That's why it's so important that the author tells us to enter this rest. Not by our works, but by our faith. The rest is the ceasing from the work of new creation. We're not working to make ourselves new because he's already been, it's already been done. You and I don't have to do that anymore. In our belief, our trust in Jesus' finished work, the cross through the resurrection, Jesus is greater. So why do we need this rest? Because we were dead in our sins. But God, don't you just love that little two-word phrase? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love, because of the great love which he has loved us, has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope. Be a new creation, a new life kept for us in heaven, unfading, indestructible. First Peter talks all about that. We need this rest because the work that preceded was nothing we could do. You and I couldn't do it. So unless the work was done by the one who could, which we just sang about, thank you Jesus, we would be without hope. And we would be without rest. And so if you find yourself in that place, come home. We enter rest through the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We enter into it. We walk daily in it, knowing that we're going to have it eternally, forever and ever. We need this rest because we cannot do the work that earned it. Yet we're invited into it through union through our union with the one who did the work, Jesus. Therefore, strive to enter that rest. Now, the question, the second question, how? How do we enter this rest? Well, you may already have gathered the answer. It's simple, by faith. By faith. 
The answer was given to us in chapter 3, in our previous chapter, and in this text. Look again at verses 2 and 3, the first part. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Look at verse 3. He continues that thought. For we who have believed entered that rest. So we enter this rest by faith, not by work, not by doing things, not by even good things that you might say are, are kingdom things or Christ things. Even Jesus gave us the warning in the Gospels that there are many who call on my name, but I never knew them, which is in incredibly scary. Faith, then, what is faith? Faith is this trust, right? The scriptures would explain it as and define it as and show us that it's a childlike trust in the person and the promises of God. Faith is what happens when you hear God say, it's finished. When Jesus says it's finished and, and, you, and you trust, you believe that it is actually is, that the work is done and that we're not good enough. But it's okay that we're not good enough. So there's a posture of humility in faith, right? But it's okay that we're not good enough because Jesus has given his good enough to us, as one pastor put it. So we live and we rest by faith. We believe God's word. We trust Jesus, not just one time, Daily. Daily. And understand this as we get to the last part of our text. At the heart of sin is pride. At the heart of sin is pride. And pride cannot accept grace. Pride hates grace. Because grace leaves no room for selfishness, self-glorification, self-exaltation, at the heart of pride is the thirst for deity. And you can trace that again all the way back to the very beginning. In the garden with the serpent, with the devil, Adam and Eve. The heart of pride is the thirst for deity, the desire to be God. That was the great lie, right? That's why our flesh detests the idea of this rest that's an offer. This rest that's from Jesus. And our flesh is so sneaky, so sneaky at times that it can convince us that we are in this rest when we are actually very, very far from it. Resting in our works, even, again, even our good works, religious works, which is why he gives us the last two verses in our text. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We have these final verses in this section from our text, and the author to bring this warning against what the flesh desires. And so may we hear this warning with great humility. God knows our heart. He knows every one of us. He knows our heart. He knows all the things about us. There's nothing hidden from him. As the scripture says, we are naked and exposed to him. He knows us. He sees the actions. He hears the words. But more importantly, he knows our heart. The attitude of our heart. Where our heart is placing trust. Are we placing our trust for 
for eternity and salvation in ourselves, in our works, in our things that we do? Or are we placing it all in Christ? He knows that some of us are clinging to good works. And the best we can offer is to bring our own efforts. And he would say to us, put it all down. He would say, put it all down. Stop. Rest is available. Our efforts, our self-righteousness, our weariness, our tiredness from striving to finish the work on our own, he's saying, stop. Put it down. You are not alone, and we're not alone in this. We're all in this. All of us are right there. None of us, no matter how great of a person we think we are, which if we need that humility marker, ask the people around you how great you are. You know. But the invitation is still there. Like the author points out in verse 1, it's not too late. The promise of entering his rest still stands. Jesus invites you to come and have rest. And here's how we'll finish. Listen to Jesus' words, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Jesus says this to us. Come to me. This is the invitation. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's a greater promise. Come. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you that the invitation is still available. That it didn't just end at a certain point in history, but it is available to us right now, right here. Wherever we are, whether watching online or in this room, it's available to those to come home to come to Jesus, to believe, to have faith in his finished work and not in our own. God, may we each individually look at our own lives, look at where we've placed our trust, look at who we're relying on to bring us ultimately home for eternity in heaven. God, I know your scripture teaches us that you wait patiently so none shall perish. God, may today be the day that one of your one of your creations comes home and becomes a new creation in Christ. That they would have a heart of repentance, a heart of humility, where they would look and say, I need Jesus be my savior this is my sin this is what separated me this is my rebellion this is my brokenness and I can't do this I need Jesus God may that be the work of your spirit in those who need to come home today God encourage all of us who are following after Christ who, who find ourselves Maybe, maybe drifting or not trusting as much as we used to 
not at rest as we once had. To just confess, repent, to experience that rest in its fullness. And God, may you help us to run the race, to cast off anything that would hinder us, to endure, to persevere, to strive every day until we're home. And we experience that homecoming. God, may there not be a person in this room or online watching that doesn't have the hope of the promise of the homecoming in their lives. May everyone know and trust and believe in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.